0: For the dead and the living, we must bear witness. Ellie Wiesel Hey, my name is Zach and this is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, the podcast for tradespeople and the blue-collar middle class. I'm open to punch a few holes in the stereotypes that surround blue-collar workers and hopefully share a lot of the stories behind how we got into our line of work and the honest joy you can get from working outside of the office space. The plan is to mix in interviews as well as some solo stories from job sites, fatherhood, and personal experiences that led me to where I am today. Some will be funny, some will be personal, but hopefully any and all content here can now broaden what your opinion is of the blue-collar middle class. Hey everybody, welcome to another week, another episode. This one I'm just going to kind of forewarn you, it's probably going to be pretty dark. Uh, there was a extremely grisly discovery locally in British Columbia here, and it's made national headlines, maybe international, I don't know to be honest, but nationally it is a massive story, which is amazing, it should be, and hopefully it continues to stay in the spotlight here for a while. Um, In a a city about three hours from me, Kamloops, BC, uh, they discovered the remains of 215 Indigenous or First Nations uh, children buried underneath what used to be one of the schools in the residential school system in Canada. Now, if you don't know what the residential school system is, and quite frankly, I don't blame you because even me as a Canadian, it was a a blip on the radar through our social studies through high school. There was, you know, maybe a, a paragraph on it, or you know, maybe at best a chapter that we glazed over. And I was familiar with the term, but I honestly I'm kind of ashamed to say that I I didn't know much more about it because it didn't affect me or anybody in my family personally. And again, like that's, you know, I feel embarrassed about that because, you know, as I've said before, I kind of, I tend to fixate on or really enjoy reading about the darker aspects of humanity. And there isn't much darker than this. I mean, it's, it's described as genocide, cultural genocide, ethnocide, you know, it's, it's abhorrent. And again, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't really know much about the history of this. And so in the last few days, I've been starting to read into it. But I don't think I don't think I could really do it justice at this point to to spend a full episode discussing it. But it completely threw off my line of thinking for this week. So this week is kind of about genocide about the ideas behind it, different, we'll look at a few different examples throughout history of just, you know, it's different mentalities. It's not always just wiping out, just wiping out a race of people, you know, it could be race, erasing a culture, it could be, again, erasing a nationality, it could be erasing just somebody or a group of people who think differently than you, or have a different way of life than you, or again, were happen to be born on a different plot of land, or, you know, believe in a different god or a different deity than you do. It's, It's insane to me, but we'll look over a few aspects, and I'll give a little brief rundown of what I have started to read about in the residential school system, and something that I'm going to continue to read on, because... You know, this is something that I should have learned a long time ago. I should have sought it out on my own. But well, all we can do is try to move forward better than we were in the past. So I'm gonna be spending a lot of time researching this and we'll definitely do at least an episode focused solely on this. But you know, all that I can think about this last week is genocide and different different cases that it's you know taken place in history and just the mindset that seems to be involved in that and what really leads up to it the fallout i mean the fallout's pretty obvious but you know maybe the lead up to it and the the mentality that takes place during it isn't so obvious so again forewarned this is a this is going to be a pretty dark podcast a pretty dark episode and so i'm going to say right off the bat uh, i'm going to give a little bit of a shout out here but if you want to listen to something a little bit lighter that might kind of lift your spirits or make you laugh Uh, Check out The Randomness Podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B-N-E-S-S. The Randomness Podcast. Those guys are great. That's Kevin and Matt. They're two cousins, I believe, from West Virginia. But, I mean, really, isn't everybody in West Virginia cousins? Anyway, they're they're a great little podcast. Give them a listen. You definitely won't regret it. Now, digging back into today's topic. So, this discovery, again, took place in Kamloops, British Columbia, in the grounds of what was a residential school. And again, there were 215 bodies of children found there. Um, The youngest, the youngest uh, appear to be around three years old. And this is, you know, the, the, the worst part about this, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the reading that I've done on different genocides or different, you know, absolutely mass, casualties in history are exactly that they're history they've taken place you know a a decent time ago I mean a lot of them were in the 20th century so we're not talking about a a long period of time but the residential school system the last school closed its doors in 1996 I mean I was seven years old that's in my lifetime that's barely one generation removed it's crazy to me that this has happened for so long. And yet again, even growing up, I mean, I graduated high school in 2007, 11 years after the last school closed its doors. And we were barely taught anything about it. It was a blip on the radar. We glazed right over it. And I think that's what's kind of baffling me the most when I started to read into this is just how little about it I knew and how little I imagine that a lot of people No, in Canada I mean unless you have personal experience with it I don't think very many people were that well educated on the topic and it's I mean it's terrifying to me I, I think I've laid it out pretty well on this podcast how much I value kind of education and just understanding our history so that we can learn from it moving forward and for this to be as big of a blind spot in my life kind of it shook me up a lot this week and I'm I imagine I'm not alone, and I imagine, especially to my international listeners, that there's a pretty low probability that you guys know what I'm talking about at all. So I'm going to go over some basic facts about the residential school system. Again, this isn't going to be an in-depth dive because I'm trying to do that that dive presently. I'm, I'm trying to read up on it, but, but this discovery was just so grisly and so... It just shakes everybody up. I mean, it shakes, it, it just shakes the foundations of what you even, you know, the the culture that you're proud of being Canadian, myself, you know, it, it, there's just such this dark shadow, that can't even really be called history, because it, they just closed their doors so recently. So anyway, you know, 25 years, it, sorry, I'm going to repeat that a few times, because it's just, it's crazy to me, how long this went on, and how recently, it finally shut down and there has been little to no recognition nationally on a political level. We'll get into on a religious level, just the absolute lack of any kind of response whatsoever. So here's a few of the details that I've been able to dig up so far, just to kind of give you a rough outline of this. And again, I'm going to keep digging on this. And this is a, a bit of an outreach to anybody listening. If you or if anybody you know, is a survivor of this system or has personal experience with this. This is not an outreach for a podcast episode. I'm not looking to create content off this, but I would really like to learn from them. Again, if anybody wants to share an experience or has knows somebody who wants to share their experience, this does not have to be on a podcast. And for the first while, I, I absolutely wouldn't want to do it. I just want to understand the story behind it. I want to get firsthand experience a firsthand kind of account of it because it's not it's not very often that you can get firsthand accounts of something like this and I just think it would be invaluable to hear and to understand and to try to wrap my head around you know different people's experiences and what they went through but so here are some of the facts that I could dig up so the practice of the residential school system seemed to kind of, There was no attempt at it uh, prior to 1812. I don't know if you're familiar with this either, but there was a war between Canada and the U.S. in the War of 1812. And it was basically the French and English settlers in Canada, and they recruited, and together with the indigenous people who were already here, they pushed back an American invasion on Canada and ultimately burnt down the White House. So, you know, rah-rah. But after this was settled and after the threat of the Americans invading was kind of dealt with, the uh, the settlers kind of turned their attention now to the indigenous tribes that were here. And, you know, again, the the fucking disgusting part about all of this is that, you know, as soon as the threat of the American invasion had been kind of subdued, now the attention was turned at, you know quote-unquote, dealing with the Indigenous people. You know, now that they weren't needed as allies, now they were viewed as the next problem. And the idea was that they had to assimilate them into the culture, and, I mean, we'll get into it here, but they wanted to destroy the culture. And so, from what I could find, the first residential school opened in Brantford, Ontario, and accepted its first boarding students in 1831. So... I mean, and the system's aim, and this is a quote, was to kill the Indian in the child. That was the objective of the residential school system. The idea of it, and again, the the reason why they targeted children is because they didn't see much hope in changing the adults, in really destroying the culture that way. And so they went about it in the most insidious way imaginable. I mean, I'm, I'm a father of four. They're all young. And I can't imagine the idea of, you know, in this case, it was uh, the religious leaders, the police, it, it eventually got taken over by the government. It was a, a government ran program, which again, it's just insane to me. Well, I mean, it, it's not, I'm not a big government person. Uh, you know, I think I've, Conveyed that pretty well across the the last episodes, but um, for them to take these children, remove them from their homes, remove them from their cultural I- cultural identity, and to remove them from everything that they've ever known, throw them in these boarding schools, and then again attempt to destroy their culture. They were they were abused. Um, You know, some reports are showing they were used for medical testing. They were starved. Uh, One of the tests that I was reading about was just to see what the effects of malnutrition and starvation would be on kids. And I mean, how how do you even, how do you do something like that? Like, uh, this is what, this is again, one thing that I try to wrap my head around because You know, humanity is obviously complicated. It's messy. You know, I I don't think that any one person is 100% evil. And so, like, people can talk themselves into, you know, a positive motivation for just about anything, that from the outside it looks morally reprehensible. But if you talk to somebody who's doing it, they've somehow talked themselves into this being a virtuous act or something that has merit but the idea of this it's just it's so outside of my my realm of understanding i i don't i don't understand how this was perpetrated by people who again you know were following religious doctrine and i mean i grew up in the church so you know i i'm i wouldn't consider myself a religious man at this stage in my life but I mean I understand peripherally enough to I I don't understand what part of the Bible you could draw from to justify any of this kind of behavior or this treatment of another human being. I believe it was in it was in the roughly the 1860s, 1867 maybe that the government ended up getting involved and you know, basically streamlining this system and kind of taking it over. So I'm just going to read this quote. This is from Wikipedia regarding it. So many of the government operated residential schools were run by churches of various denominations, with the majority administered by Roman Catholics. Between 1867 and 1939, the number of schools operating at one time peaked at 80 in 1931. Of these schools, 44 were operated by Roman Catholics, 21 were operated by the Church of England slash the Anglican Church of Canada, 13 were operated by the United Church of Canada, and two were operated by Presbyterians. The approach of using established school facilities set up by missionaries was employed by the federal government for economic expedience. The government provided facilities and maintenance while the churches provided teachers and their own lesson planning. Now I'll also add to that that um, during the peak, it is estimated that there were more than seventeen thousand enrolled students in, across these eighty schools. Um, all in all, across the duration of the program, you know the number that I'm reading is roughly a hundred and fifty thousand children were pushed through this this system. And to classify it as education, I mean that's just gross. It's disgusting. It's a, I, I yeah I don't know what else to say about that. And this, again, this evolved over time into, you know, they started to forcefully um, take kids away and set them up through adoption programs, primarily to English-speaking white families. Again, this is just a continuation of the residential school system and kind of transforming it over the years. I think that was in the 1960s and 1970s that that was really a targeted program, and that, I believe, affected roughly 20,000 children through that, through that stage as well. So again, th- this, um, this program had has been going on for a long time, and it is insidious. And I have a feeling that, you know, I mean, I'm sure, even more recently than 1996, this same method of adoption has been used as well. Again, maybe I'll turn that up in in more reading and more trying to educate myself on this topic. But I have a sneaky suspicion that that is, uh, is going to be correct. And so throughout all of this, I mean, you're taking away people's kids. So you're destroying the parents. I mean, I can't imagine that as a parent, what that would do to me it would destroy me. And then you're also trying to remove any sense of heritage from these kids. And another key component of this is that they would purposefully a lot of the time locate these schools far enough away from the the tribes that it made it nearly impossible for them to visit their children at any interval. And they also would, you know, um, not allow them to visit them. Like I remember reading, I was reading an, uh, an actual letter, a notice that was sent home to a family. Somebody dug it up. And anyway, a lot of this stuff is kind of coming to the to the light of day. I mean, I'm sure it's been there for a long time. It's just that finally it's getting a a spotlight shone on it. But it was basically this letter from 1948, just telling the parents of the children that, oh, you're so lucky this year, you get to your kids can spend Christmas with you. But there's all these different guidelines that they have to follow, they have to pay for transportation from the school and then back to the school. And If the kids aren't back on time on the given day, then they will not get to see their kids, you know, for the next year or for whatever the next time period that they would be allowed to see their own kids. They'll take that privilege away from them if they don't get them back on time from spending Christmas with their families. And I mean, this is just a tiny single page example of just how how disgustingly controlling and... And just insidious this program was, the idea of it was, again, to completely shred the indigenous culture and to assimilate them into, you know, European thinking, the settler thinking, I, I don't know what to call it, but it's just disgusting to me. It's completely trying to destroy destroy a, a heritage, destroy a people group, just to just completely eliminate them off the face of the earth and try to bring them into the, you know, the air quote, fold. And so anyway, I mean, I'm going to kind of digress off this topic because those are kind of some of the key points that have stood out to me so far in in reading about it. But, you know, at least this spotlight is now being shone on the government, on religion. I mean, this isn't something brand new. I mean, I, I believe that there was a council that was set up roughly in two thousand and eight to look into this. I mean, even then when I when I say that, like it's not like they were given enough funding or any clearance to go through and, you know, look for these burial sites or to actually really turn up any of the evidence that this happened. It was probably more of just a political play to appease people and to look like they were doing something. But now that this spotlight is on the government and is actually It seems to be gaining traction nationally. You know, hopefully there is something that can be done, some kind of reconciliation or, you know, I mean, even just acknowledgement would seem to go a long way. I mean, I was reading here in, in 2018, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reached out to Pope Francis for an official apology. And that was completely rejected. 2018. I mean, (laughs) this is three years ago. And there's just nothing. It's just this big shroud of silence, like no acknowledgement, no nothing like that. That alone, like, yeah, it's a baby step. But it's at the same time, that is a monumental step to at least accept responsibility. And just take some ownership of it to at least validate what is being said by the victims of this. Because again, closing its doors 25 years ago and probably still going through this with the adoption system. And, you know, I mean, it's it's just crazy to me. It, it, again, I'm so happy that this is kind of finally coming to light. And again, it it woke me up. It, it made me pay attention to it. And I have a feeling that it's doing that to a lot of other people. And I'm hoping that this kind of stays in the spotlight now for a while because it is important. Uh, stuff like this shouldn't be swept under the rug. It's the same thing now, again, transitioning to different to different genocides or just ethnic killings in history. I mean, I'm reading right now, the book is called Armenian Golgotha by Gregoris Balakian, and it's regarding the Armenian genocide, kind of uh, the the overall feeling and just the political movements because it kind of it took place right in the midst of World War 1 and see so just the feelings leading into it again i've just started this book but it's it's fascinating to see how the lead up to these things how that goes like what the sentiments are what the mentality is and just different warning signs that you can see before something like this takes place because there are There are different signs that seem to be um, kind of the same across a lot of different situations where this has come up. So, okay, I realize I'm 20 minutes into this episode and way late on actually, you know, giving you the definition of what genocide is. I think people understand it anyway, but the definition from the Oxford Dictionary is the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular nation or ethnic group. And so again, the few examples that we're going to go over here, this is not an inclusive list, this isn't going to include everything. Uh, There's countless, you know, (laughs) documented events of this in history. It seems to be something that follows humanity around. And it's something that, you know, it's an aspect of us that we've obviously got inside of us. And it's, it's continued chugging along all the way through our development, our evolution, whatever you want to call it to where we are today you look at what's happening to the Uyghur people right now in China, you look at what's happening to the population of North Korea. I mean, again, maybe these aren't exactly a genocide, because it's, you know, I mean, in the the case of North Korea, it's your own population that you're starving out and killing. But in the case of China and the Uyghur people, that absolutely is, because that is a different culture, a different belief system. And the idea is to root it out and destroy it. So this isn't you know, a lot of the times when we look at history, at least when I was growing up and the way I was taught it, it's like, yeah, you know, this happened a long time ago, but we've we've learned from it, we've moved on. Well, I think that's just the wrong way to look at a lot of this stuff. Uh, these certain aspects of humanity and m- morality don't don't ever seem to go away. We just get to the point where we're, you know, we like to think that we're civilized enough that this is behind us, but it's not. It's still happening in the world today in 2021. Just because it's not front page news, or it's not at the top of your news feed doesn't mean it's not happening somewhere else in the world. And it's something that, you know, I have to remind myself of. And I think that's part of the reason why this story itself shook me up so much because it's so close to home. And it's so it's so recent. That to think that this was happening here again, three hours from me, and probably closer—I'm sure there was a residential school closer to me than that—is just it's frightening. It's uh, it's you know, it's eye-opening. It's something that makes you think, and really, at least that's what it's done to me this week. And so, again, we've got the situation in North Korea now, the Uyghur people in China. Uh, one of the other topics that—and again, I was going to do a full episode on this, but. I have a feeling this one's going to run a bit long anyway. So that book that I had talked about before, actually in my top five most recommended books that I did a few weeks ago, one of them is called The Rape of Nanking. And what happened there was the mass slaughter and destruction of the city of Nanking in Manchuria, China. That was done by the Japanese invading forces in 1937. And they killed upwards of about 300,000 people over the period of a six-week invasion and occupation. Now, when you hear the the number of 300,000, it doesn't exactly compare mentally to, you know, for example, the Nazis' killing of 6 million Jews or, you know, China, the Maoist China's killing of 60 million people. Or, you know, the estimated 20 million at the feet of the Soviet Communist Party and their revolution. You know, the 300,000 doesn't sound like it's that big in comparison, but there are a few key factors to keep in mind here. This is <clears throat> spread out over a six week period, this is done in hand to hand combat in the most brutal way you can possibly imagine okay, so to put it into perspective, uh, we're all going to be pretty familiar with the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, close to the end of World War II. So the death toll estimates are about 74,000 people that died in the blast in Nagasaki, and about 140,000 people were killed in the blast at Hiroshima. So again, I'm not trying to take any weight out of those either. But those were nuclear bombs or atomic bombs dropped. And, you know, that that combined is about 214,000 people. Now, what took place in Nanking was, again, over a six-week period. These were probably 90, 95% civilian casualties, a large portion of them being women and children. And again, if you want to do a deep dive on this, Read The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang. It's it's one of the hardest reads ever. I mean, it goes into, into a lot of descriptors of the way that, you know, newborns were killed, uh, toddlers were killed, women were killed, uh, families were forced to watch their family members, their daughters, their wives, their moms be raped by groups of Japanese soldiers in front of them before being impaled on bayonets or you know again this is fuck this is this is a dark subject matter and again I tried to give you a warning at the beginning it gets dark but you know they were i mean some of the atrocities involved there were things that you can't even imagine i mean there there were eyewitness accounts of you know skewering babies on bayonets before tossing them into boiling cauldrons of water. Alive. I mean, things that you just, you can't even imagine. You can't imagine seeing, you can't imagine living through. I mean, I, I can't imagine the effects that it would have on you afterwards, seeing your child die that way, or seeing, you know, again, they would force, they would force family members to rape other family members at the threat of death. And then they'd kill them anyway, because you can't have these witnesses going around telling people what happened to them. And if it weren't for a very small group of people who set up the International Safety Committee in Nanking, and again, I've I've kind of hinted at it in previous episodes, but there were British people there, there were Americans, and there was one guy in particular, John Rabe, who was a proud as hell, you know four-finger saluting Nazi, armband and all. He had everything. He had, uh, you know, full regalia. And this guy, to this day, has a statue raised in his honor. And the house there, the the house of John Rabe, Because this guy, as well as the rest of the International Safety Committee, put their lives on the line, put their bodies physically in between the guns and the bayonets and the knives of the Japanese soldiers and the Chinese, the Manchurian civilians and saved as many of them as they could. And that speaks to something so much deeper than just a political ideology, you know, as extreme as it can be. Cause again, John Rabe was a root and toot Nazi. You know, I, I don't know how else to put it. As soon as you, put those four letters together you're immediately flooded with the idea of the ultimate horror and you should be but this guy had enough moral fortitude regardless of what his political and ideological beliefs were and again this was 1937 so it was pre a lot of the atrocities that were committed in world war ii so who knows maybe he wouldn't have uh gone along with that stuff. I I kind of have a feeling he wouldn't have because of just the character that he showed in this in this 6-week period. But you know, it's stories like that that are so important to tell of just people who stand up in the middle of these horrible events. And so anyway, what happened the the Japanese took the city, it was really clear that they were taking it, they had struggled taking other cities as their their march through China. And so what they did is they took it out on this population of civilians, they took out all of their aggression, their anger, their frustration, and they just took it out on the men, women and children of this captive population, there was no way to get out, they were surrounded by, you know, a river, mountains, and that was all patrolled by by the Japanese. They had them surrounded. They had them closed in. And you know, again, the ironic part is because the Japanese were afraid of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. So that is actually one of the things that ended up saving John Rabe and allowing him to save others. You know, he draped the flag on his rooftop so that they would be seen from above. And, you know, he just he did whatever he could to save all these people. He ended up dying penniless and, you know, kind of cast aside by the German population and the fact that he was, he was, again, he was lumped in with the Nazi party, which again, I, I, you know, if you're going to fly that flag, if you're going to be associated with that, I understand it. But you know, him in particular, it was a, it's an amazing story. So anyway, this, uh, This is just another example of, and I mean, the Japanese in World War II, the the Imperial Japanese Army, and just their mentality was that they were superior, and that anybody in their way, and you know, there's even accounts, it's crazy in this book, because you get some accounts from soldiers who were there, part of the invading Japanese army, and they had been told and indoctrinated from being, from when they were a kid and going through schooling, that they were the superior race, and that you know they were they were that much better than everybody else in asia and that the way that they looked at it even the way that their nation is shaped is that it's somehow this shield for for the asian continent and that it's theirs to to rule over and to protect and some of the first hand accounts were that they were shocked when they got to china and realized that these people looked like them they had things in common and they were just amazed they couldn't believe it because everything they had been taught up to this point is that these are just a mongrel race we are better than them we should slaughter them and then you know in this case all that teaching came to the forefront and completely overpowered any sense of humanity and so they would go through again raping killing whatever on this <laughs> helpless population and this story the other important part about this book too And again, going back to my high school education, we didn't learn anything about, you know, what Japan was doing pre-World War II or, you know, why there were countries that were at war and incredibly angry with them. All that we learned about for Japanese, for the Japanese involvement in World War II in high school was that they attacked Pearl Harbor and then they got two atom bombs dropped on them. That's it. (laughs) And so if there's anything that I'm kind of pissed off about, it's, It's that we didn't learn a lot of this stuff going through high school or, you know, in history class. Again, maybe if I had the opportunity to go to university and study some of this, I would have, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there, maybe some of you that are listening that are way more educated than me and are saying, yeah, duh, Zach, like we learn about this stuff. Well, I'm telling you from a dumbass electrician with high school and then a technical school degree, I didn't know any of this stuff you know, as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, it's something that I started to learn and really get obsessed with later in life. But, you know, it's just, it's that mentality that somehow you are superior, and you need to wipe out another ethnicity, another belief system, just another group of people. Again, you know, maybe it's just because they were born on a different patch of earth than you were. So you know, you got to raise the ground and, and just level it, And it's, it's crazy to me. And again, this mindset still continues on to this day, not just in the form of extremely racist ideologies, or, you know, or again, in political movements in, in China, to the Uyghur people, in North Korea, just on its own population, you know, that that probably wouldn't fall into genocide. But it's absolutely mass killing on a global scale that does not get enough recognition or enough attention. And so, I mean, another one that we're all, or at least I hope we're all very familiar with, is the the Nazi killings of the Jewish people. Again, the numbers are estimated up around 6 million Jews that were killed. And it wasn't just Jewish people. It was anybody who the, quote, Aryan race viewed as inferior. You know, it came down to intelligence levels, any kind of handicap or, you know, whatever whatever they viewed as being beneath them, it was almost viewed, actually it was, as a pestilence or a disease. So in their mind, and again, this is where, I'm obviously not excusing anything, but where I find it interesting how people can spin a narrative to somehow having value or virtue. And again, I can't I can't personally put myself in a viewpoint where slaughtering people based off of a belief system is is ever a moral standpoint, you know, but again, if you want to read a great book on that, it's uh, Ordinary Men by Christopher R Browning that book goes into just the way that you can change people's minds, even when they're, you know, in their 30s, 40s, they didn't grow up in this, they weren't indoctrinated, like the Japanese youth were the Japanese soldiers, they, or, again, or the Hitler youth, you know, they, they didn't grow up in that system, they were already grown, they had a, a moral compass, they had, they had a life to live, they had experience perspective and yet still they were able to be molded and and somehow brought into the fold of the Nazi death machine so it's just something that we got to keep in mind in my opinion it's always out there you still see it flare up here and there nowadays in in just crazy racial language or just this this idea that somehow people are absolutely beneath you for some stupid benign reason and this this comes back to like again this the system that we're in it's messy it's dirty there's a lot of shit that goes back and forth it's not perfect by any means but it's one of the best that we've ever had and I don't think that people understand what happens when a society is completely slanted in one direction like You know what, again, democracy isn't perfect. The system that we have now isn't perfect. In any way, there's a lot of flaws, there's a lot of little things that we could tweak or try to fix. But the fact that you have kind of things pushing against each other and keeping that balance of power somewhere in the middle is a good thing. You know, there's you don't want one side just sweeping over the other and having their ideology rammed down everybody's throats because, you know, that's what you see in... (laughs) That's what you see in North Korea. That's what you saw in you know Maoist China. That's what you saw in Leninist Marxist Soviet Union and then Stalin and you saw this wave, this oppressive wave just bearing its weight down on its on its population. So you know when when you see things that you don't necessarily agree with, you know what? You can you can disagree with them. You can get angry you can get loud you can attack it you can do whatever you want but at least appreciate that you have the ability to do that because if that other side ever got the upper hand you wouldn't be allowed to do that anymore you would just be crushed under the weight of it that's all it is so even if you think that you know you're on the the righteous side there are always little bits of pointers that you can get from the other side as well you know there's It's an incredible, it's just an incredible tension that keeps things kind of together. And I think that's something that, again, we don't have a great enough appreciation for. You see somebody who disagrees with you or has a different opinion about something and it's just, oh, fuck that guy. Like, you know, shut him up, silence him, send him to prison, do whatever, whatever, whatever kind of rhetoric you throw out there. I mean, you see some hyperbolic crazy shit about killing them, throwing them in a gulag, whatever, like that's. You know, again, I think that's just people actually showing their murderous tendencies and where they actually want things to go. But that's just me. Again, that's why I like free speech. I know who to avoid and who to, you know, label as a real extremist. Because there's just, it's crazy when people crave power and control. And that's what all of these systems are employed around. It's trying to just bully your belief system or your nationality or your ideology. Whatever ology you want to throw on that, it's using power to completely ram it down somebody else's throats. And if they don't take it, well, that's easy. We'll just kill you. We'll, we'll cleanse the earth of your existence because now we'll replace you with more of us, right? So don't, you know... <laughs> When people get up in arms about free speech or about again the clash of ideas, it's it's infuriating to me because that is what kind of keeps everything together and in balance is that tension, that those two forces pushing against each other and somehow we hammer out some path that keeps nobody perfectly happy but you know everybody on a decent course. And again, you know I don't know why I feel like I have to keep adding this little caveat, I think it's pretty obvious. But yeah, there are problems within the system, we can fix them, it doesn't mean ripping down the whole system, and then just seeing what fills that power vacuum. Because it is a lot worse than most people nowadays could imagine. Again, just look into history, we have tons of examples of this. I mean, there's, there's a very well known quote, but it's, You know, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And this is just a cycle that continually repeats. You can see it in history. You know, you can see the rise and the fall of empires, like, (sighs) but we don't ever seem to want to learn from it. And again, sorry, I'm veering a bit off track here, but it's just It's that mentality of, of what kind of leads up to this, this genocidal thinking. And it's the idea that at all costs, you have to assert your will on a population and you have to change it or eliminate it. And that's all I really have to leave you with this week. This does not follow my, my normal pathway of a, of an episode and I'm sorry about that, but it's it's just something that, you know, it, it came up. It's it's headline news here in Canada. I hope it stays in the headlines and it maintains this spotlight that it has on it. I've got a couple of books ordered up right now that are about the residential school system. Um, I know at least one of them is a first-hand experience written about it. I, I would be lying if I said I'm looking forward to reading them and that I'm really looking forward to learning more about it because again, it is a dark, dark spot, and I'm not even going to call it in our history. I mean, obviously it started in our history, but it it ended way too recently to be classified into history. So again, I'm not looking forward to this read or these reads, but something that I think is important and again looking looking at all these different and this is not a definitive list and we didn't get into a lot of uh, a lot of the individual or particular parts or statistics of each of these but it's a brief enough overview and i really wanted to get the point across of just that mentality of somehow wanting to assert your will and just viewing people as somehow inferior which is it's mind numbing to me and you see it brought up Nowadays, more and more in just online rhetoric and the way people talk to each other, and the way we dehumanize each other, which is the scariest part of it. Because, I mean, that, again, that's exactly in line with the Nazi thinking. They literally viewed the Jews as vermin. Or it's the same way when it came to the Japanese. They viewed the people as subservient. Or, again, they they compared them directly to rats or as some kind of a parasite on the body which was Asia. When you start to dehumanize people, these are these are the end kind of goals of that that thinking. That is the destination that you're heading to when you take humanity out of the people that you disagree with. It's the same thing in Canada. That's what you know the the government and the the British and French settlers did they dehumanized the aboriginal culture and they just said that's it we got to get rid of it it's beneath us it's uncivilized we need to destroy it and the best way to do it is to re-educate the youth in that in that population rip them out of the arms of their mothers and fathers (laughs) perform experiments on them leave them out in the cold starve them and then re-educate them and somehow make them, I don't know how this could be viewed as civilized in, in any idea, but now, I mean, now we're still seeing the after effects of it. The alcoholism, the substance abuse, the extreme, and I do mean extreme levels of suicide within the First Nations communities I mean, even there was a story last year about a certain community that still, that didn't have clean drinking water. They haven't had clean drinking water in forever. The The government kept promising it to them and just never got around to it. And now that I think about it, that's something I'm going to have to look into because I can't see it that it actually got dealt with. Who knows? I could be wrong, but government efficiency, I have zero faith in it and you know, just based off of the, the timeline of the way that, you know, they've kind of been treated and pushed into the dark corners and a rug thrown over it. It's just, it's it's crazy to me. It's it start, yeah, it's uh, it's bothering. It's And anyway, so that's what I'm working on now for the next while. I'm gonna try to learn more about this. And again, sorry, this episode is fucking long, but I'm pissed about it so if you do if you do want to discuss this again not on a podcast I'm just I'm honestly looking to learn so if you or anybody you know would be interested in just discussing it with me I mean I, we can do a zoom call we can just email text whatever it is uh, get a hold of me um, at plaidjacketphilosopher at gmail.com or through any of the socials send me a message I will get back to you right away this is a topic that I just want to learn. And again, it doesn't have to be on the podcast. I just want to know more about this. And if I can get firsthand experience, and firsthand accounts of it, I think that would be invaluable to just to trying to put a face on it and more of a, a personal an aspect to it. Because those kind of stories are just, there's so much more riveting, there's so much more important, you can you know, when you hear how it affected somebody from the person themselves, it's it's such a rare opportunity. I think in when you're dealing with horrors of this magnitude, and it's something that I I'm just I'd like to learn about. So if you or anybody you know would like to share their story with me, again, it doesn't have to be on the podcast. And at the beginning, it absolutely wouldn't be. I I'm just I want to get more accustomed to this and learn more about this. But uh, reach out to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys. Sorry. This one was a weird one, but have a good week. And hopefully next week it won't be so heavy. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you've given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is The Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook at jacket plaid on Twitter and at plaid jacket philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support and especially those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to y'all again soon.